You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So the main point of today's passage is what it means to be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And I want us to look at that phrase together in verse 6. I just want us to to see this together. So maybe uh, look uh, at your neighbor's Bible if you have to here. This is uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Look at verse 6 again. Paul says there, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That, that phrase, that, that idea of being a good servant of Jesus is the heart of the passage that then is expounded in verses 7 to 10. And so for the sermon today, I want to just give you three truths about what it means to be a good servant of Jesus. Number one, a good servant of Jesus clarifies what matters most. Number two, a good servant of Jesus believes rightly and lives rightly. And then number three, a good servant of Jesus has their hope set on the living God. We're going to just walk through each of these three points, but let's pray again. Father, by your grace in this moment, we bow our hearts before you to humbly receive what you have for us. We trust that it is your good pleasure to teach us from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So number one, a good servant of Jesus clarifies what matters most. And this is verse six. And in order to understand what Paul is saying here, we need to to back up for a minute and remember his train of thought, which goes back to the end of chapter three. Chapter three, verse 15, Paul describes the church as the pillar and buttress of truth. The church's mission, if you remember, is to advance and defend the gospel. And then in chapter four, verses one to five, Paul shows us the environment of that mission. And he says, there's something negative and positive. We live in a world that is hostile to truth and we live in a world full of good things that God created for our thanksgiving. And all of that is what Paul has in mind in verse six when he says, if you put these things before the brothers, if you are presenting these things, if you are teaching about the gospel we confess and the opposition we face and the goodness of creation we sanctify. In other words, verse six, if you are trained in the words of faith and in the good doctrine that you have followed, if you're presenting these things to the church, it means you're a good servant of Jesus. And then in verse 7, we're going to see Paul explain more about what that means. But, but I think first, we need to stop and realize that when Paul says these words here, good servant of Christ Jesus, there, there is an implied value that Timothy shares with Paul. All right? In other words, when Timothy is reading this letter, imagine Timothy's reading this letter around the year 65, when he gets to this part of the letter, he is not checking out, but he's leaning in, all right? When he reads these words, good servant of Jesus, Timothy's thinking, yes, that is exactly what I want to be. And so Paul has his attention, and Paul knows he has his attention. Paul knows that what he says here is appealing to a good aspiration in Timothy. Timothy, we've already seen in chapter 3, verse 1, Timothy had aspired to the good task of wanting to be an overseer, a pastor. 
And so now the question is, how can he be good at that good task? Okay, that, that is the issue here with Timothy. I think is the first thing we should see. But I want you to notice, although Paul is talking to Timothy here in reference to his office as overseer, Paul doesn't use that word. He doesn't say, if you present these things, you will be a good overseer of the church. He doesn't say, hey, if you present these things, you will be a good pastor of the truth. Instead, Paul says, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And I think one reason he does this is because what he says in these verses applies to all Christians, okay? Remember that when Paul is writing this letter, he is intending for this letter to be read to the entire church of Ephesus. Although it's addressed to Timothy and there's some very practical things, a lot of second person verbs in here, he's talking to Timothy. Although it's to Timothy, Paul, Paul uses the phrase here, servant of Jesus, because it has a wide application. He, he intends for everyone in the church to hear this because every person, every Christian in the church is a servant of Jesus. Every Christian should want to be a good servant of Jesus, which means when we get to this part of the letter, when we come to this section of 1 Timothy, this is not just the part when Timothy leans in, but this is the part when all of us should lean in. For all of us who follow Jesus, verse 6 should get our attention you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. You should get our attention because being a good servant of Jesus clarifies what matters most, and here's why. Serving Jesus, this goes for everyone, serving Jesus is more fundamental than anything else any Christian could ever do. Timothy was an overseer of the church in Ephesus. He was an apprentice of the Apostle Paul. Both are wonderful callings. Both are important ministries. But before both of those ministries, most fundamentally, Timothy was a servant of Jesus. Before anything else, Timothy, you serve Jesus. You serve Jesus. Paul says that to Timothy, and he would say that to us. You are not your job title. You are not your relationships. You are not your gifts. Before anything else, Christian, you are a servant of Jesus. And Timothy says, yes, Paul, you're right. I am a servant of Jesus. I am a servant of Jesus. We are servants of Jesus. And it's one thing to say that. It's an, an entirely different thing to actually live that way. To actually live in service in Jesus. I, I, I'm talking about a, a, a Godward orientation that is so concerned and so focused on God. So conscious of God's realness, so convinced of God's truth, so enamored by God's grace, so enthralled with God's glory that we as servants of Jesus, living as servants of Jesus mean that we live, we live freely. And we live freely as in we live imperturbable, untouchable, 
unshakable. We have the resources in the gospel through the Holy Spirit to live this way. Romans chapter 8 spells this out for us, but we all know, although we have the resources, although we have the power, it's not so easy. Jesus is the only person to ever do this perfectly. Here we are like Paul most of the time, just stumbling our way in the footsteps of Jesus. We try our best to connect his truth to our lived experience, but it's not easy. And one thing I love about the Apostle Paul is that we can see him do this. We can see him wrestle with this in his letters. For example, Paul says in Galatians 1 that in his ministry, He's not seeking the approval of man, and he's not trying to please man, because if he was, he would not be a servant of Jesus. He understands, Paul understands, that seeking the approval of man and serving Jesus contradict one another, okay? And so Paul bears down in Galatians 1, and he says, I am a servant of Jesus. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, he says that when people judge him, it means nothing to him. In fact, Paul says that he doesn't even judge himself. Instead, Jesus is the one who judges him. Paul says, I don't care what you think about me. I don't even care what I think about me. What matters is what Jesus thinks about me, and Jesus sees everything. I am a servant of Jesus. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, he's He's talking about the hardship of this world compared to the glory of the next. And, and Paul says that whether we are here or there, whether we are in this world or in the next world, we make it our aim to please Jesus. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I am a servant of Jesus. I am a servant of Jesus. We are servants of Jesus. Everything else can just go. Everything else in your life will end. It will be over. But not serving Jesus, not pleasing Jesus. Paul's aim, no matter what, no matter where, his aim is to please Jesus because he knows who it is he's going to answer to. And then Paul lets that shape the way he lives. He commends the same thing to Timothy and to us. He says, Timothy... Church, more fundamental than anything else you do, you are a servant of Jesus. You are. Hear that, Christian. And that certainly clarifies how we think about our lives. You will stand before Jesus one day. You will answer to Jesus one day. And so right now, with our lives, in our lives, let us live unto him. Okay, Here's the idea. Let us live right now in this life like Jesus is more real than anything else. Because he is. Here's the second point, number two. A good servant of Jesus believes rightly and lives rightly. And we're going to see this in verse 7 here. Paul is just continuing to explain what it means to be a good servant of Jesus. Um, in the original 
there's actually the conjunction and between verses six and seven. So Paul says, verse six, that a, a good servant of Jesus teaches or, or puts forward the words of the faith that he's been trained in, the good doctrine that he's followed, and verse seven, and verse seven, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. So Paul is both exhorting here and he's explaining what a good servant of Jesus is. And he, he tells us two actions that target two interconnected categories, all right? So I want you first to notice the actions here. He says, first, this hand, have nothing to do, right? Which is avoid, basically, avoid. And then he says, to train, all right? So there's the negative verb, to avoid, and then there's the positive verb, which is to train. So say no, and then say yes, all right? Now, look at what he's referring to here in the passage. He says, have nothing to do, avoid irreverent, silly myths, which means bad beliefs. And then he says, train yourself for godliness, which means good behavior, all right? So I want us to get how this is working. This is really neat for Paul. There are two actions and there are two categories. There's the negative avoid, there's the positive train, there's the category of belief, and there's the category of behavior, all right? You guys see that? A good servant of Jesus avoids bad beliefs and trains for good behavior. Or in other words, a, a good servant of Jesus believes rightly and then lives rightly. And part of believing rightly is avoiding bad beliefs. It's avoiding bad doctrine. It's what Paul calls here irreverent, silly myths. All right, and this is just interesting, okay? A little side note here. This is, this is an interesting thing in the text, right? You got, have you guys ever heard the phrase before? I know you have. Old wives' tale. Old wives' tale. It's like a, an English idiom. You know, it's, it's, it means something like a superstition or a fable. It's been around for hundreds of years. Well, if, if you've ever wondered where that phrase come, comes from, it, it comes from right here in 1 Timothy 4, 7. Because the Greek, the Greek word translated silly in the English Standard Version, the, the word translated silly there in verse 7 is an adjective that literally means old womanly, all right? It's the only time the word is used in the, in, the new, in, in the Bible, okay? It's an odd word. It's a strange word. It just, it literally means old womanly, all right? Well, back in 1611, when, when the King James Version was first translated, which is a very literal translation, they translated the phrase silly myths, like extremely literally. And so they translated it, old wives fable which is where it came from. So if you've ever wondered where the idiom came, come, comes from, that's where it comes from. Um, it just kind of got stuck in English. And so we've, we know what it means when we say old wives fable. It's like a myth, a superstition. It comes from 1 Timothy 4, 7. Here's the idea though. The idea is that there's, there was a superstition being passed around. Some type of super, almost like an urban legend basically that was, was going around, except that, that it, was, it was profane. It was an irreverent, twisted kind of myth, and apparently it has seeped into the church. People were being led astray, and Paul says, hey, a good servant of Jesus has nothing to do 
with that kind of stuff. One part of embracing good doctrine is knowing how to reject the bad. Is this doctrine, is what I'm hearing here, is it the teachings of demons? Is what I'm hearing here, is this some kind of profane superstition? Those are the questions that we ask. To believe rightly means we need to know which false doctrines we must have nothing to do with. But here's the thing with that. Paul understands that we cannot know what bad doctrines we should reject unless we know what good doctrines we should embrace. And we can actually see Paul doing this in this chapter in verses 1 to 5. Okay? This is just a simple observation going back to last week in verses 1 to 5. Notice, if you look back at those verses, Paul doesn't just mention the bad doctrine in verses 1 to 3. He doesn't just mention the bad doctrine. But he also puts forth good doctrine in verses 3, 4, and 5. In other words, Paul doesn't just tell us what not to believe, but he tells us what we should believe. He warns us about what is false, and he commends to us what is true. And that is always Paul's practice in his letters, and it has a shaping effect, I think, on a local church. And this is where I think maybe the metaphor of the church as a family, of uh, you know, the household of God, I think it could be helpful for us here, okay? Because sometimes, we, we know this, sometimes in a home, sometimes in a family, there's a kind of parenting that does a better job at saying what you're against than at saying what you're for, okay? In some homes, prohibitions happen more frequently than affirmations, okay? You guys know what I'm saying. You guys get this, okay? We can call this sort of home a home where there's little air, okay? Heavy with law, light on love, okay? And of course, nobody wants that, right? Nobody wants to lead a home that way. No one intends to lead a home that way. It happens very subtly though. And I think about this from my own home all the time. We, we at our house, we have, um, we have just three main rules at my house, okay? And we get this from God, okay? We get this way of thinking from God because God has hundreds of moral laws in the Old Testament, like 613 moral laws in the Old Testament. And yet God can take all those laws and he can get them down to what? 10, right? The 10 commandments. And then he can take those 10 and he can get them down to two. Love God most and love people second. All right, so the first and second, the greatest commandments there. And so it's simple, right? It's simple. And so we're trying to do a similar thing at our house. We're trying to do a, a similar thing to that. And we have just three rules. And here they are. We, we can't get them down to two. We have to do three. Here, here they are. It's obedience, honesty, respect. See, right there. Obedience, honesty, respect. And we try to teach these with grace by the power of the Holy Spirit in faith because you have been set free, rescued by the blood of Jesus. Be obedient. Tell the truth. Respect others. That's the positive way to say it, see. But, you know, there's another way it could be said. And sometimes I can find myself doing this. It could be said, 
don't disobey, don't be dishonest, don't be disrespectful. Don't, don't, don't. No, no, no. We could frame our entire home around the negatives. We, we could make our entire family be framed around what we don't do. And just like households can be framed that way, churches, the household of God can be framed that way. Some local churches are great at knowing what they're against. Well, we're not like that other church. We don't believe that way. We avoid those things. That kind of thinking can be very dangerous because it makes the church become so inverted that its identity becomes its distinctives and its distinctives become all the things that it's not. See, you get what I'm saying? That's not good. But the healthiest of churches, just like the healthiest of homes, are the ones who know what to celebrate. These are the churches who are more energized by proclaiming the glory of God than by trolling for deficient orthodoxy. That's the kind of church we want to be, a church that exalts Jesus a church that celebrates the grace of Jesus, a church that knows what to celebrate. We want to be that kind of church because that, that's where Paul takes us here. Paul never only says, hey, don't believe that false teaching. There's always more to say. Believing rightly does require that we avoid certain doctrines, bad doctrines, but there's always good doctrine to celebrate and we should celebrate it. We should dance, be a dancing church. That's what it means to believe rightly, okay? Believing rightly, over here, living rightly. A good servant of Jesus believes rightly and also lives rightly, and these are interconnected. We know this. Good beliefs lead to good behavior, although it's not automatic, this is something we have to work on. The word for train here means to train as in condition yourself, to, to exercise discipline. It's the word gymnazo, which is where we get the English word gymnasium, all right? So th th this is the only time the word shows up in the whole New Testament. Okay, Paul's using his hopox legomenon. He's using these words one time. He completely hijacks this word from the athletic realm and he applies it to godliness. This is, this is amazing what he's doing here. He's taking an athletic word, he's applying it to godliness, and godliness is a shorthand way of saying behavior that's in line with the gospel. All right, I wonder, I do wonder, um, what we think about when we hear the word godliness, right? Uh, I think a lot of times when we use the word uh, godliness today, um, it can kind of sound like a pious word to us. Am I right here? Do you think you get what I'm saying? Like it, we think about godliness as like, you know, being morally upright, but also maybe like a little bit of smugness to it, you know, like godly, you know. Like we, we can we tend to think that way. I think we 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 think that way. I just want to be clear, if we do think that way, that that Paul uses the word very differently than how we might think. 
if you want the right image for godliness, if you want to know what you should imagine, what you should picture when you think of the word godliness, Paul tells us it's Jesus. This is in chapter 3, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then what's he say? He was manifested in the flesh. True godliness, true godliness became a person, and his name is Jesus. So when you think godliness, when you think about that word, think Christ-likeness. When Paul says train yourself for godliness, he's saying work hard, discipline yourself, put forth an effort, the effort to become more like Jesus. That's what he's saying. And then he tells us why. All right, this is the third point. This is the last point. A good servant of Jesus has their hope set on the living God. Look at verse eight. Paul follows up verse seven with the grounds for why it's worth it, okay? Train yourself for godliness for this reason, for this reason. Here it is. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So Paul's making here a, a solid argument, all right? First notice the comparison between physical training and spiritual training. Zach's already set that up for us, okay? Paul is putting these two things beside each other, all right? There's physical exercise on one hand, and then there's godliness or spiritual exercise on the other hand. Paul puts them side by side, and then he evaluates them, okay? Over here, when it comes to physical training, it has little value. That's that, the word's actually little. Most translations say some, which is fine. It's the same meaning, but it's actually little value, okay? So little value over here. And then over here, godliness, spiritual training, working toward Christ's likeness, becoming more like Jesus, this has value in every way, all right? So, so little or some, little, and then every are the two adjectives that are juxtaposed with one another. There's some value over here, and then there's, every value over here. Now, why the difference? What, what makes the difference here? Why is godliness valuable in every way? Well, Paul tells us it's because godliness holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So spiritual exercise has two promises, Physical exercise has one promise. It's basic math, right? We get this. Physical exercise is good. It has benefits for this present life. It's good. But spiritual exercise, becoming more like Jesus, it has benefits in this present life and in the life to come, which means it's a double promise, like a, like a double rainbow. Oh, my God. It's a double complete promise. What does it mean? You know, here's what it means. Here's the, here's the thing. The comparison Paul makes only means something if you really believe there's a life to come. This makes sense, right? The life to come is, is what sets the pursuit of godliness apart 
from every other pursuit in this life. And so if there's no such thing as a life to come, then we shouldn't waste our time. If there's no life to come, then then we should only invest in the things that pay off now, right? That makes sense, right? If, If all we have is this present life, then we should only do the things that benefit this present life. You follow that, okay? So, so say that you're living this way, all right? Say, pretend that you're investing only in this present life. Well, problem. According to Paul, godliness benefits this present life too. He says that godliness has value in every way, which includes value in the present life, which means you know you can't completely throw godliness out because it's helpful here. And so what does that then look like? Here's the question. What does godliness look like when people know it will benefit them now, but they don't really believe in the life to come? What does that look like? I think it looks a lot like American Christianity. It means checking the box on godliness just so you can collect in the here and now. It looks like trying to be as morally upright and comfortable as possible. It looks like working hard to learn more and more about the Bible while doing the bare minimum of loving your neighbor. It it looks like being kind of generous, but really just making sure you've consumed everything you want. This is partial promise, half-hearted, nearsighted godliness. And it's all over America. And it makes sense if there's no life to come. But there is. (laughs) There is a life to come. And that's what makes all the difference. That's Paul's point in verse 9. He says, hey, look, look, this saying is trustworthy. This is deserving of full acceptance. This is completely true. You should embrace this. What what I'm saying here, you, you can build your life on this. And Paul's like, actually, I have built my life on this. I've built my entire life on this. That's verse 10. He says, for this, for to this end, we toil and strive. All the hard work we've done, all that I've suffered, are you kidding me? All that I have gone through, I'm looking to the life to come. I'm looking to the life to come. That's what we're about, Timothy. That's what I'm doing here, Timothy. That's what it means to be a good servant of Jesus. It's because our hope is set on the living God. And at this point, Paul wants to be crystal clear, okay? When he talks about the life to come, he's not talking about some generic afterlife, okay? His hope is in the life to come, as in his hope is in the living God. That's what he says there in verse 10. His hope is is in the God who is over all life, whether this present life 
or the life to come. The living God is over all life. And then Paul just gets even more specific. He says the living God, the God who gives life to all things is also the God who saves. He is the God who is the savior of all kinds of people. That is of those who believe, which means Paul here is he's closing in his focus on believers. He's talking to Christians. Our hope as believers, our hope as those who embrace the gospel, our hope is in the living God who saves us. And this is what I think just brings it all together right here. Paul's telling us what it means to be a good servant of Jesus. That's more fundamental than anything else we do. And yet, more fundamental than that is not our relation to Jesus, but Jesus' relation to us. It's that he's our Savior. It's what... Paul says in chapter 1, verse 15, Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Which means before we can be his servant, he has to be our savior. And he is our savior. And this is something to celebrate, which is what brings us to the table. As we come to the table at this moment in our service, and also um, today as Palm Sunday, we are entering into a time right now and this week when we remember especially what Jesus has done to save us. It's that we were lost and destined for wrath. We We were servants of sin and without hope in this world, but Jesus, by his grace, because of his great love, not because of anything that we've done, Jesus came into this world and he rode into Jerusalem to die for us. He took our sins upon himself. He absorbed our punishment. He paid our debt. And then on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus came to save sinners. And this morning, if you trust him, if Jesus is your savior, we invite you to give him thanks now at this table. We're going to serve the bread first. Just hold it and we'll eat it all together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.